Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning, we're going to be continuing a sermon series that we started uh, some months ago uh, in the book of Exodus. I'm really, really grateful uh, for my brother, Willie Addison, preaching last week uh, in the beginning of Exodus 12, uh, covering for me so that me and my family could get out of town for a couple of days. I actually got a little bit of cold weather in the mountains of North Carolina, which was nice. Um, And so uh, thank you, Willie, uh, for, for preaching last week. This morning, we are going to be picking up that same story in Exodus chapter 12, uh, picking up at verse 29. And if you've been with us throughout this series in Exodus, one of the things that we've said over and over again is that we see in this story the fact that the Exodus story really is our story. That just as Israel uh, was born into captivity and bondage and slavery in Egypt, that the perspective of the scripture is really that the whole world lies in a type of slavery, awaiting a liberation and a liberator to come. And so that really the work that Jesus does, that we believe that he does as Christians in freeing us from the slavery to sin and death, is really his work of being like Moses, a better and truer, a liberator of God's people into freedom. And so we want to look once again at this Exodus story that is also our story. And so if you would, let's stand for the reading of God's word. We stand and we read God's word, not as, a, not as some kind of superstition or uh, anything like that, but we do it as an act, as act of reverence, uh, to symbolize to God and to one another that we stand ready uh, to listen and then to put into practice what we hear from God's word. And so our reading today starts in Exodus chapter 12, verse 29. I'll continue to verse 42. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go, out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent uh, with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up and their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, Besides women and children, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt. 
And it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. This is God's word. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. You can be seated. You know, most human communities have foundational stories that they tell themselves, that they remember about how they came to be, about why they exist and how they exist. This story uh, that we've read is certainly the foundational story for the Old Testament people of God. The story of their creation as a nation, their being set free by the God who had promised them to set them free. But nearly all human societies have these foundational stories that we rehearse, stories that ground us in our identity, Stories that remind us who we are, where we came from, and where we're going. We think in our own country of the foundational stories of our nation, right? We tell the story of our Independence Day, July 4th, 1776, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, right? This is a part of our national story that we celebrate on an annual basis uh, by lighting things on fire and shooting them into the sky, This is what we remind ourselves in times of national crisis. It's to these foundational stories that we return to remind us of where we came from and the better impulses of our direction as a nation. One of the most famous Independence Days and one of the most famous speeches of an Independence Day was given actually on July 5th of 1852. Think about 1852. uh, The nation was on the brink of civil war. Uh, thoughts about slavery and emancipation were at the forefront of the national consciousness. And a group in Rochester, New York, invited Frederick Douglass to come and to speak to them on Independence Day. Frederick Douglass uh, being the great African-American abolitionist, one of the great orators and speakers of his day. And he went and he spoke not on July 4th, but on July 5th. It really is one of the more remarkable speeches you'll ever hear, or I guess read. Somewhere I heard a speech, of, uh, you can find it online, of James Earl Jones reading this speech, and that works. You know, hearing James Earl Jones read anything, that works. Here's the way that Douglas began that speech. He said, fellow citizens, I am not wanting in respect for the fathers of this republic. The signers of the Declaration of Independence were brave men. They were great men too, great enough to give frame to a great age. It does not often happen to a nation to raise at one time such a number of truly great men. The point from which I am compelled to view them is not certainly the most favorable, and yet I cannot contemplate their great deeds with less than admiration. They were statesmen, patriots, and heroes, and for the good that they did and the principles that they contended for, I will unite with you to honor their memory." That's how he starts his speech, starting with a respectful framing and remembering of the impulses of uh, the founding fathers who signed that Declaration of Independence. But he goes on. 
Fellow citizens, pardon me. Allow me to ask, why am I called upon to speak to you here today? What have I, or those that I represent, to do with your national independence? Are the great principles of political freedom and of natural justice embodied in that declaration extended to us as well? But such is not the state of the case. I say it with a sad sense of the disparity between us. I am not included within the pale of this glorious anniversary. Your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessings in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, and independence bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you and not by me. The sunlight that brought light and healing to you has brought stripes and death to me. This 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, but I must mourn. What Douglas was doing in that moment was reaching back to claim uh, what was most noble and true about our founding and looking at the present state of the case and comparing that reality to those founding memories and saying there's a gap there that needs to be bridged calling America to its truest ideals of its founders. Well, this is not a sermon about the United States or our government, although it is good to be reminded of our uh, founding principles and moments uh, of crisis like that. But this isn't about the founding of the, uh, the U.S. This is about the founding of the people of God, right? the founding of the nation of Israel, the founding of a people that we claim a continuity with. And what was true then is true for God's people. That renewal in our day, remembering who we are, involves looking back to our founding story. Looking back to this founding story of the Passover. Remembering who we are. Remembering who God has called us to be. So that we could root our identity in it. And live out of it more faithfully. The United States, uh, the story of our independence and freedom is justly celebrated as the story of people standing up and taking a courageous stand for what they believed in. By contrast, the story of Passover is the story of Israel doing a whole, not a whole lot, really. Uh, I think it's called a night of watching here because that, that was basically what they were tasked with to do. Kill a lamb, put its blood on your doorpost, make some unleavened bread, and then you watch what God will do. The founding of the people of God is not one rooted in human courage or ingenuity. It's rooted in the grace of God, the power of God, the power of God to act when Israel could not act for themselves, the power of God to act when we cannot act for ourselves. You know, if you were to ask an Israelite what they believed, they might well start by telling you this story. If you were to ask them who they are, they might begin by telling you the story of the Exodus. More than telling you, they might invite you into their home when they celebrate the Passover meal. It was in that meal that they believed that they were most truly who they were. That it was in uh, the breaking of bread around that table, the memory of their fathers and grandfathers' exodus out of Egypt. That was at the very center of their life. In fact, earlier in chapter 12, they say, you know, when you're doing this Passover meal and celebrating the Passover, when your children ask you, why are you doing this? Remind them of the story. Remind them of who you are and where you've come from. 
In the same way, there's a modified Passover meal at the center of Christian worship around the world. There ought to be. We're not doing communion right now. But, uh, but ordinarily, every time we gather, we remember a Passover meal. The bread and wine being for us the body and blood of Jesus. So it is both for the Israelites and for Christians that the Passover is the story that reminds us of who we are, that draws us back to our reason for being and our way of being in the world. And these are strange stories to have as your founding story, right? Both the cross of Jesus and the Passover out of uh, the land of Egypt are stories shrouded in darkness and violence and sorrow. How can these kinds of stories be stories that lead to life and to freedom? This story begins on a dark note with the Lord striking down all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. There's this poetic reminder that this would happen the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne, so it happened to the most powerful person in Egypt. It happened to the person in the dungeon, the lowest person in Egypt, and it even happened to the livestock in the fields. That there was not, from the highest to the lowest, anyone who escaped this judgment that was brought against the Egyptians. This is, of course, the culmination of the plagues and all the judgments that had led up to this point that had led them to this moment, and it's this one to which Pharaoh finally says, enough. God, you've shown your power and your might. Go and get out. Uh, Take your people out of my land. This story uh, can be hard for us to understand, right? Why God would do something like this in order to set his people free. It calls on a principle uh, that is somewhat alien to us, but is pretty consistent throughout the Bible. And the idea is this. It's that the firstborn of every family belongs to God. The firstborn belongs to God. You think that that sounds strange to our ears, right? We think that whether you're the firstborn or the the youngest in the family, we're all equally belonging to God, right? And... uh, We don't have a concept of of this in our current uh, culture. But it's really clear. If you look at Exodus chapter 22, God says this, The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. You shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep. Seven days it shall be with its mother, but on the eighth day you shall give it to me. Again, he says in Numbers 3.13, The firstborn of all are mine. Now, what this meant in Israel was uh, that when you, when you had your firstborn child, you were to go and take him or her to the temple and make a sacrifice on behalf of the child, right? So it was a symbolic way of acknowledging that God had brought life and inheritance into your family to take that child, to offer him or her to God, but you didn't leave him there. Uh, you certainly didn't sacrifice the child. That was forbidden uh, throughout the pages of the Old Testament, even though their neighbors did that. But you were to go, and then you were also to make a sacrifice of a lamb or an ox or something like that in place of the child, and then you happily took your child home with you. Later in Numbers 8, uh, we're told that the Levites, that tribe that were given to be priests to God, so the one-twelfth of the family of Israel that served as priests, uh, 
that they were given in place of the firstborn. So instead of the firstborn out of every family serving God, we'll take the Levites, they'll be the priestly family. And the others can go about domestic uh, agricultural life. This is why in the strange story of Genesis 22, when Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac, though he clearly struggles through that call to sacrifice his son, what he never says to God is, you can't ask this of me, or this isn't fair for you to ask me to sacrifice my son, because it's in keeping with that principle that God has the right to the firstborn of every family. And when he doesn't call it in, it's because of his grace and his mercy. So when Isaac asked Abraham on the way up the mountain, where is the lamb? He's asking because he knows there needs to be a lamb in my place. And Abraham, perhaps through tears, says, God will provide. And so this principle that the firstborn belongs to God it grows out of an awareness that we uh, really don't live with this, uh, in our day and age of the commonality and solidarity between individuals and families, right? The fact that we are a communal people before God more than we are simply individuals before God. That God doesn't just work uh, in our own personal spiritual lives, but that we are a part of a broader community and of a longer story. And so to say that the firstborn belongs to God is to really to say that your entire life belongs to God, right? The, the, the firstborn, remember, inherited the double blessing of the family. He was the, he was the one who would carry on the family's land, wealth, and legacy. So it's to say that this, this closest of my attachments, this closest of my loves belongs to God. My hope for the future belongs to God. Everything I have belongs to God. Everything I want for my life and my family belongs to God. It was a reminder that our entire lives are the Lord's, our past, our present, and our future, that everything that we do is accountable to Him and that we have to answer to Him for our lives. And so when God then visits judgment on the firstborn of Egypt, He is in effect calling due what is owed to Him. He's bringing that judgment that waits all of the earth at the last day, when all of us will be accountable before God, when all of our lives will be laid bare before him. He's taking that judgment from the future, which is just, and bringing it back into the present to bring that judgment to the Egyptians. Their suffering in this story is tragic. It's unusual. But it's not, from the, from the perspective of eternity, unjust. It's God visiting his ultimate kingship and ultimate judgment of the earth into history in order to leverage that judgment on Egypt, on Pharaoh, who's been so resistant to his voice, in order to move his redemptive plan forward through his people. And so God and his judgment comes. And the only way for the people of Israel to be hidden from God's judgment is to sacrifice a lamb, to rub its blood on their doorpost, so that God, when he comes, he says, when the destroyer comes. Right? That's an image of God that we don't often think about, God the destroyer. God whose presence and holiness is consuming of sin and rebellion. 
that when the destroyer comes, he would see the blood on the door and pass over that house. Again, we have this principle that the lamb, the sacrifice, is a placeholder for the firstborn of the household. That instead of the son or the daughter, God accepts the life of the lamb in order that the sons and daughters might go free of death. The lamb was a placeholder. The lamb's life instead of my own. This judgment of God that comes on Egypt at this time There's an interesting note uh, in chapter 12. In verse 22, God says this, None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. I love this little note because what it shows is that this judgment is an utterly egalitarian judgment. God's not saving the people of Israel because they're better. He's not saving them because they're more righteous. He's certainly not saving them because they're ethnically different than the Egyptians. In fact, what he's telling them is, if you accidentally go outside at the wrong time and are not covered by the blood of this lamb, you also will be struck down. Right? I'm not passing over you because you're an Israelite and I'm not then judging them because they're Egyptians. I'm passing over you because I'm accepting the sacrifice of the lamb. So your salvation from this judgment isn't about you. Right, I love that that's one of the, the key kind of repeated phrases to the Israelites throughout the Bible. He didn't save them because they were more righteous or stronger or more plentiful or more powerful. He saved them because he chose them. He saved them purely out of his movement of love in their direction. And he covered over their sin by the blood of the sacrifice. We just sang... Uh, at the beginning of our service, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Right? Nothing in and of ourselves, nothing in and of Israel's self enabled them to pass through God's judgment. But only God's grace in accepting the sacrificial blood of the Lamb on their behalf. And so over a thousand years later, when an Israelite rabbi named Jesus goes to celebrate the Passover with his friends, the Passover that would be his final Passover on this earth, when when he gathered uh, with them in the upper room, when he had all the arrangements made for a Passover meal, the unleavened bread on the table, the cups of wine at every place, when he picked up the bread, instead of saying the words that would have been expected, This bread is the bread of our affliction, and we remember the suffering of our fathers in Egypt. What did he say? This is my body, broken for you. Right? He said that my body, my life, is the reality that that lamb pointed towards. Right? That the salvation that our fathers went through in Israel and in Egypt was never about Fluffy the lamb getting sacrificed. Right? It, wasn't, uh, it wasn't about the livestock. That, that was a placeholder. That was a symbol pointing towards something further and greater. When John the Baptist first sees Jesus in the Gospel of John, what does he identify him as? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No longer just the sin of the Israelites. 
no longer just leading them uh, into a particular political liberation, but that here is one with the power to take away the sin of the entire world so that God can look on you and I and see the blood of the Lamb covering over us. That's why the church is a body marked not by any accomplishment of our own, right? It's not our, it's not our, our faith isn't built on the fact that we're more righteous or more holy or more moral or more upstanding, right? It's not on the fact that we're more successful or better looking. It's not on the fact that we're socioeconomically of one class or another. It's not that we're of one race or another race. Before the judgment of God, none of that matters, right? None of us will appear before the judgment of God and say, God, I did the right things my whole life. I voted the right ways my whole life. I was born into the right kind of family. I did my very best. No, the only thing we'll be able to say before the judgment of God, the only thing that will matter is I'm either covered by the blood of the lamb or I'm not. His blood is either over me or it isn't. And so the founding story the founding story of Israel, the founding story of the church uh, is one of God's amazing grace. And his offer to each of us is to return to that story. Right? If, you, if, if you've ever wondered what Christianity is all about, what kind of life God wants for you, and what, what the origins of the faith is, this is it. It's a simple invitation to say, God, don't take my life for my own sin, for my own brokenness, for my own flaws. Not my life, but the life of your son. I place my life under his. I trust in his sacrifice so that I, a sinner, can have a living and vital relationship with you in this life and forever. It's an invitation. The founding story is an invitation. And if you are in Christ, it's a reminder that you're belonging to God is entirely owing to his grace and his mercy. That you're, uh, if you are in Christ, you don't have to live in fear of God's future judgment because he has cast all of his judgment already onto his own son so that we need not live in fear of it. Even though Pharaoh is a pretty bad guy in the story of the Bible, Right, Pharaoh, who's enslaved God's people for 430 years. Pharaoh, who refused to let God's people go in freedom. This Pharaoh, very clearly the bad guy of the story. Still, your heart can't help but break right, when you read that Pharaoh's son died. Right, that even, even as bad as he was, Pharaoh felt the pain of a death that no parent should ever have to endure the loss of a child. And yet God was willing to take Pharaoh's pain on, even into himself. Right? God knows what it's like to lose an only child. God knows what it's like to have not only his firstborn, but his only begotten son from before creation suffer and die. And he walked into it willingly so that he might not be an only child but it's so that we might become with him sons and daughters of God, heirs of the promise, members of his household. Praise God. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, we pray that you would help us, guilty though we are, to find our righteousness in your sacrifice, to find our peace in your shed blood. Lord, help us to believe this good news, that it really is true, that we don't have to live in fear of God as a cosmic judge, but that you have made peace with us through the sacrifice of your son. Lord, help us to live in that peace. When we forget who we are, when we forget where we're going, when we forget what we're about as a people, Lord, we pray that you would ground us, remind us of this story that tells us who we are. Help us, Lord, to live out of this story. When times are dark, when times are hard and the way before us is unclear, Lord, help us to walk in your grace. Help us, Lord Jesus, to come to you again and again to receive your mercy in place of our sin. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.